0: Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 77, where we go back Back to the the past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, and I thought I told you to shut up. (gasps) Oh, what the... <laughs> oh clutch heavens to me, oh goodness gracious. Uh <laughs> so a little <laughs> preamble for this episode and and uh, yes. like we did the last one, uh talk about our process when, when Chris and I do a book, usually one of us does the script primarily. We kinda take point and uh, you know, write the whole thing out, uh script the comic and you know, the pick out the voices and the dialogue and stuff and you know, the other person might backfill a little bit, but Pretty much one person does it. So we, what we decided to do was to pick a comic for the other person to do. And mm-hmm. and last week I did my first uh, manga ever, which was Monster by Naoki Urasawa. Naoki Urasawa. I, there you go. I remembered it. Uh, which was uh, a really great experience. And this week I picked something very strange from my childhood for Christopher. Uh, <laughs> what was that?
1: This was Heartbreak Comics from 1984, written by David Boswell, penciled by David Boswell, Mm -hmm. inked by David Boswell, color cover by David Boswell, lettered by Mm -hmm. David Boswell, presumably edited by (laughs) David Boswell,
0: and published by... David Boswell. Wow, soup to this guy, <laughs>
1: with a cover price of two fifty Canadian.
0: Oh, I don't hear any U.S. dollars being spoken there. That this is uh, from across the northern border. But mm-hmm. since this fella did so much for this comic, we have to talk a little bit about David Boswell. He was born in 1953. We have to assume somewhere in Canada. I grew up in London, Hamilton, and Dundas, Ontario. Studied film at Sheridan College in Oakville, Ontario And graduated in 1974 In a 2011 uh, 11 interview with the comics reporter Boswell reveals that he did not exactly graduate He did not get to his final film project on time And received an I for incomplete, very uh, Canadian system From there, he would become a pizza delivery driver For a little while This job he claims allowed him to become the chronicler Of the fellow we're about to discuss He says the benefit there in terms of what I got and the experience of going door to door, seeing into people's lives, and interacting. After six months on the job, he was able to save enough money to buy a drafting table.
1: Now from here, he would go on to become a darkroom technician in a Toronto photography studio, a mind-numbingly tedious job that he'd keep until 1977. Now, Boswell always kept a sketchbook, however, did not think about working in comics. Uh, a friend of his really dug his work and would share his drawings with her colleagues at work. Uh, from all this positive feedback he received, he decided that maybe he ought to give comics a shot. Uh, upon learning that the New Yorker paid $600 for a single panel cartoon, he decided to definitely yeah, <laughs> start shopping his work around. all
0: right, yeah.
1: Yeah, I guess I, I read somewhere that his uh, monthly rent was like $70
0: a month, so yeah. 600 bucks was more than enough. This is late 70s in Canada. You know, it was a good time, yeah.
1: Certainly. Now, among the many, many rejection letters he'd receive were ones from notable uh, publications Esquire, Playboy, and National Lampoon. Uh, he would eventually be advised to send his work to Vancouver's The Georgia Strait, now, uh, he claims he'd never heard of the Georgia Strait because he was, quote, a square. Uh, now, his sing- single-page strips on Laszlo, the great Slavic lover, received a positive response, and Boswell was a- able to procure himself a weekly gig at $20 a week, which is
0: uh, $20 a page. That's right. And then, so, you know, that plus uh, $10 is uh, rent, basically, what you were telling yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, That was uh that was rough, but it's funny that it's kind of like... Uh, Underground comics got thrust on him. He didn't try to make it into into there. He, right. The other way around, but uh, it was sort of the time uh, that that could happen. So about Reed Fleming, he's the world's toughest milkman. He made his first appearance in the appropriately titled Reed Fleming, World's Toughest Milkman, Number One, October 1980 cover, published by Deep Sea Comics, which is you know uh, David Boswell's comics. Boswell's I own thing, yeah. Uh, Though first ever appearance in print would be a couple of years prior in Vancouver's Georgia Strait Number Five Fifty. That came out on June 9th, 1978. The Georgia Strait is a Vancouver underground newspaper spotlighting events, music, arts, movies, restaurants, food, dining, nightlife, and things to do in Vancouver. British Columbia has been around for over 50 years. Wow, it's still around, huh? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. A lot of of cities have papers like this, but not anymore, folks. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Boswell claims that Reed Fleming was created on June 29th, 1977 in Toronto, Ontario. It was a Wednesday. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: what he says.
0: (laughs) Wow. Reed Fleming was based on a childhood bully of Boswell's with the same name. Like from his kindergarten class, that much, that back in his childhood. Uh, Boswell believes the real Reed Fleming grew up to become an Anglican minister, who thankfully never filed suit for using his name.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Now, we're going to hop right into the the issue we're going to discuss here. It's Heartbreak Comics number one. Now, the full-color cover promises revenge, seduction, and betrayal. Ooh. Features several of the folks who are about to meet dressed in costumes for a party that we're about to watch them attend.
0: We'd list them all right now, but then what will we talk about later? So we'll, we'll exactly. get to all those fine people. We'll open with Laszlo, the Slavgarian lover, putting his clothes on after finishing up with one of his many ladies. The lady goes, Laszlo, darling, can't you stay? Laszlo says, it is late, and I have a responsibility to my profession.
1: And so he runs home and takes a shower before flicking through the pages of his little black book. Mm -hmm. The next lucky lady is a woman named Lena. Uh, Lena Fleming. Mm -hmm. In the throes of, well, not passion, more like just standing beside one another, Laz has trouble undoing Lena's bra.
0: Well, Lena says, hurry, Laszlo, please. Laszlo says, the damn thing's stuck. Leave it on, then. No, Lena, I want you to be naked. You know, like the last time, I want to.
1: Now, this romantic back and forth is interrupted by the scree of a milk truck's brakes outside.
0: It's here that we meet our hero, Reed Fleming. He proves to be the world's toughest milkman when he hoists the rig onto his shoulders in order to properly park it. <laughs> uh, he spills all of its contents onto the street, which doesn't seem to bother him at all. No. Inside, Lena pleads with Laszlo to hide in the closet because if he walks in on the scene, Reed will very likely kill him. Very likely. Yeah.
1: Now, <laughs> Reed enters the room and goes, Hey, Lena, what are you doing in your undies? You got someone under the bed? What the hell are you doing home? Forget your lunch? The supervisor and I had a bit of a dispute. They sent me home to cool off. What kind of dispute, Reed?
0: I broke his ankle and nearly ripped his left ear off his head. Hearing this, our Slavic-Hungarian uh, lover decides to vamoose through a window inside the closet. Worth mentioning he does so barefoot, and so... Reed notices.
1: Where did those shoes come from? Why, uh,
0: I think they're yours, Reed. Don't you recognize them? My feet smell like this? Get rid of them. Where would you like them, Reed? What a closets for? He tosses them into the closet without really looking into the closet, luckily. And so, also luckily for Laszlo, through the window where they bonk him right on his head. And Laszlo says... Now that's
1: some Hungarian cursing uh, That's going to happen quite a bit today
0: Don't google that phrase either Just trust no. us, it's, it's a bad one It's bad words, uh, boys and girls No, don't don't, don't invent- go after that one
1: No, now uh, Laszlo returns home and crosses Lena Fleming's name Out of his little black book However, if you want a good time You can still reach her at 988-1110
0: Laszlo says mega <laughs> kutja
1: it's another phrase for you all not to Google.
0: Laszlo heads off to bed where he's hopeful he'll get us at least a solid two hours of sleep before having to get up to work. His boss, Ken, now has other thoughts and calls our man bright and early. Yeah, he says
1: uh, You weren't sleeping, were you? Uh,
0: listen, Ken, I, I just.
1: Don't bother explaining. Themes, right? Speaking of which, wait till you see this new
0: secretary. Laszlo thinks to himself, i
1: she's a knockout but listen laszlo i saw her first
0: laszlo falls asleep while ken continues to drone on and before we know it it's 7 30 in the morning and laszlo's got to get up from work Ken is still talking on the other li- he is. On the line.
1: <laughs> he is indeed. Now, before heading to work, Laszlo stops for a haircut, and we meet a very puppet-like like, barber. Uh, he'll become important later.
0: Yeah, remember, when we say puppet-like also, I mean he's got wooden legs. Wooden legs with uh, joints, joints. Yeah. <laughs> he is a living puppet. Uh, by the time he arrives at the office, Ken is still talking to him on the phone. It's mm-hmm. here, it's, and he gets he gets annoyed too. He like hangs up once he sees her. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's here that we meet the new knockout secretary, Constance. I don't know about knockout, but she does have one heck of a fro. She does indeed. Ken introduces
1: her. He goes, "This is Constance, our new secretary. Constance, meet Laszlo, great Slavic lover."
0: I'm not Slav. I'm Hungarian. What's a diff? Laszlo charms Constance's pants off by kissing her on the hand. Then he throws his hat at the hat rack like he was 007 or something.
1: (laughs) Constance is very impressed. She goes, Gee, Laszlo, that was swell. And then thinks to herself, I wonder if he's that good at everything. Mm -hmm.
0: Jumping ahead to lunchtime, Constance and Laszlo head off to Zoltan's for a bite to eat and a few glasses of wine and some flirtation.
1: Gee, Laszlo, for some reason I thought you'd be married.
0: As a matter of fact, I'm not currently involved with with anyone. He spits
1: out his wine at the sight of Reed Fleming's milk truck driving past. Oh, more like flying past. Yeah. He'd
0: give zero Fs about the rules of the road. This is how he often renders uh, Reed Fleming's milk truck as sort of hovering uh, about a <laughs> few <laughs> feet off around ground. Yeah. He drives up the ramp of a, of a car hauler and soars into the sky before ending with a club. So long, suckers. Reed continues driving until he arrives at the office of a certain private detective. It's Laszlo's man, Ken.
1: Yeah, Reed bursts through the door and goes, You, you're a detective, right? I am if you pay me. Okay, here's a hundred bucks. There'll be more when you find out who's been fooling around with my
0: wife. Got any clues? I found this in the bathroom. And then Reed Fleming produces a box of Oliver Hardy brand mustache wax.
1: Mm-hmm. Reed goes on to say I've never had a mustache in my life And your wife? She's clean shaven? I'm not paying you to be funny I want results and I want them fast Like tomorrow
0: Reed stops out, stomps out of the office And finds himself surrounded by police And so he just beats the crap out of them And then gets arrested (laughs) Seems fair enough, you know Uh, Laszlo (laughs) and Constance arrive back at the office Just as Reed is being hauled away in the cruiser
1: That night, Ken and Laszlo are driving home Laszlo makes the grand gesture Of tossing his little black book out the window Since he's met Constance He realizes she's all he'll ever need By the way, if you're looking for a good time And would like to call Constance You can do so at 320-0684
0: I wonder if these were actually like people man, I wonder. David Boswell knew at the time <laughs> like, It seems like such you, you just expect to see that 555 number That when you see yeah, something exactly. else it kind of hits you weird <laughs> uh, Much later that night We rejoined Ken who's digging through the garbage To find little Aslo's little black book Going through the names he comes across The crossed out name of Lena Fleming And it seems like he's starting to put the pieces Together now
1: Mm -hmm. Now later still, we rejoin Laszlo, who's in the midst of his 15th beer of the evening As he was bet $50 that he couldn't drink 19 Moments later, he wins the bet All the while, poor Constance waits by the phone
0: Laszlo says, there, 19 beers without stopping Where's my 50 bucks? Ken is nearby and he goes, (laughs) I told you guys he could do it Laszlo thinks to himself, $50, now I can ask Constance to the masquerade
1: Unfortunately for our man, Constance has grown tired of waiting and has taken her phone off the hook Now for the kids out there, if someone took their phone off the hook back in the early 80s Anyone who calls them would have gotten a busy signal
0: That's right, and a busy signal was a really irritating buzzing sound that indicated Uh, the uh, person uh, uh, Yeah, you're trying to call is either already on the phone or... But they took it off the hook today. You would uh, go straight to voicemail because they turned off the phone, but same type of thing. Uh, Also, she appears to have scratched Laszlo's face off a portrait. He must have given her that very same day that he just met her.
1: The dude moves fast.
0: Well, he's not called the Slavic lover for nothing. Hungarian. Whatever. Uh, Jumping ahead to Saturday night, the night of the Halloween masquerade. Now, Laszlo dressed
1: as a deep sea diver, and Ken dressed like a clown. Watched some Three Stooges before heading out.
0: Laszlo says, "Gods, it sure as me puzzled. I asked her if she wanted to go to the masquerade tonight, and she just hung up on me."
1: So have another
0: beer. That's great advice. It's also not a very puzzling dilemma, not right? Really, no. Not no. really. Pretty... <laughs> I basically told you to uh, buzz off, buddy. To
1: to go take a leap. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, at the masquerade, the pair meet a fella named Craig, who is dressed as Errol Flynn. Laszlo explains his costume as Smiling Pofsky. (laughs) Whoever that is, we're assuming it's a deep-sea diver. Yeah. Uh, Now, Errol attempts to give our man some advice.
0: Yeah, Craig says, The ocean is full of fish, Laszlo. Ken gives his two cents.
1: Maybe you need better bait.
0: Even in Hungary, that is an old joke. Yeah, he's, he's right about that. Yep. Uh,
1: now suddenly, Lena Fleming passes by in a cat costume. Ken slams Laszlo's Pofsky helmet shut so he can't, she doesn't realize it's him.
0: Unfortunately, he was in the middle of smoking a cigarette that very moment. Yes. Now
1: Ken says to Lena, Hiya, Tuts, Want to dance?
0: I've had it with clowns. Who's she calling a clown? Um, maybe the dude that's dressed like a clown, Ken, right now?
1: Maybe, maybe, yeah.
0: Laszlo says, you know about Lena Fleming? I'm a
1: detective,
0: ain't I? Well, if we pay you, you are. That's how that Mm -hmm. works. (laughs) If you ever breathe a word of that to your husband of hers.
1: Me rat on a pal? Fat chance. Have another drink. I'm going fishing.
0: We next watch as Ken trips over his own feet, set to music. I think that's dancing Well, whatever it is, uh, he does it for 40 minutes <laughs> Which is uh, you, you kind of a feat in of its own Until Constance arrives with her date Hitler, or at least mm. a guy dressed like Hitler
1: So it's either the most evil man in the 20th century Or a dude with the classiest sense of masquerade fashion
0: Yeah, I don't know I don't know which one is worse, quite frankly <laughs> Right? Uh, Laszlo says, she's dancing with Hitler I've got to save her And so he socks Hitler in the mush. Invade my territory, will you? Take that! Now, is he talking about Hungary or Constance? It works either way. That's the beauty of it. I'll (laughs) fight anybody here for five bucks. As the greatest deep-sea diver of all time, I hereby challenge... Shut
1: up, Laszlo! The
0: cops are here! The pair dive through a window and run off into a field. Seems Laszlo's having himself something of a World War II flashback (laughs) here. Back inside, Hitler orders Laszlo arrested, and what Hitler wants, Hitler gets. Uh, We guess. We hope not really, but maybe in this one case. Uh, We join Laszlo three months later in the slammer. Yeah, he went to jail for three months, folks. Mm -hmm. He's halfway through his six-month sentence. Two cells over is our very favorite milkman, Reed Fleming, by the way. A prison guard approaches Laszlo with a letter from Constance. Yes, the letter
1: reads, Dear Laszlo, I'm sorry I didn't write earlier, but I was afraid you might be angry with me. I hope you're having a nice time, and we can get together as soon as you're free. Ken says hi. Love, Constance.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Laszlo says, love. (laughs) She said love. (laughs)
1: And she hoped he was having a time. Nice I know. Time in
0: Why not? You know, it's yeah. fun there.
1: Now meanwhile, in the free world, Ken asks asks Constance out on a date.
0: Uh oh, over at the mess hall now, Laszlo and Reed are sitting side by side.
1: Yeah, Reed goes, Gimme the salt. It's the only thing in this dump that tastes
0: like food. Hey, what are you in for, buddy? Uh assault. Uh I struck a man who was dating my girlfriend.
1: I know exactly how you feel. Every time I go to work, some jerk comes over and gives my
0: wife a poke. In April, he dies. You know who he is? I got a detective working on it. And then Reed proceeds to beat the hell out of another officer, just because he can. Cause he yeah. kind looks at him in, uh, the wrong way, and it's a big fight. That's it. Uh, that night, Laszlo dreams of Ken's betrayal, and he's in his Pofke suit diving underwater. He finds Constance, who's a mermaid, and uh, she's pulled out of the drink by Ken in his clown suit, fishing her up. At the very same time, Ken is trying to make time with Constance. He is unfortunately flatulent, which repulses her as well it should.
1: Mm-hmm. Ken thinks to himself, must have been the craft dinner.
0: And a handy footnote informs us that Kraft Dinner is an economical macaroni and cheese dinner, the national food of Canada, and salvation to that country's poor. It is the same as Kraft macaroni and cheese. They just call it Kraft Dinner up there because... Yeah. They got to be Why a little not? bit different, you know. Uh, Constance flees outside, still coughing from the stench. Yikes! Wow, <laughs> it's very, it's very smoky too, right? Like it comes very, out. Very it's very, very thick. It's, it's yeah. almost it looks visible the way the way it's depicted. Uh, <laughs> outside, she meets Mister Don, that puppet-like barber from earlier. Don says, "Smoking is a very dangerous habit, you know."
1: Oh, it wasn't cigarettes that did this to me.
0: Pardon my presumption, would you like some water? My barber shop is quite near. Sounds swell. From the window, Ken watches the pear leave. Three months later, Laszlo is a free man.
1: Yeah, first thing he does is call Constance from a payphone.
0: Constance, it's me. No, Laszlo. I just got out of jail. Well, you certainly picked a nice day for it. He thinks to himself, picked a nice day for it, and then he says, Look, I've got to see you right away.
1: Well, get yourself a shave and a haircut and see me in the park in a half hour. Okay? Bye. And so we follow Laszlo to a certain barbershop.
0: Uh, I guess I'll have the usual. Yes, sir. They tell me, sir, that your father was a commando during the last war... Please, Mr. Don, no small talk. I'm on my way to see the woman I love. Does that woman you love love you?
1: Mm, Before we get the answer, we jump ahead a half hour and join Laszlo and Constance in the park. We learn that Hitler is actually her brother and not a uh, romantic
0: interest. <laughs> and the, <it's> the guy <laughs> dressed as Hitler, like, I don't think Hitler is actually her brother. Maybe. Or well, that's
1: never been confirmed. That's true. Uh, now, <laughs> after some small talk, Constant tells him that she's got to go. She's going to church. But she might phone him that evening. And so she gives him a peck on the cheek, which literally sends him airborne.
0: Yeah, actually flies around. Uh, in a fun series of panels, we watch Laszlo and Love float all the way home. By the time he gets there, it's already evening.
1: Yeah, he's stirred back to reality by the sound of a ringing phone. He hits the floor with a thud, triggering the first of a couple of bloody
0: noses. Yeah, that I remembered very well for some reason. Yes. <laughs> look at them. Uh, Lazo says, Listen, the most wonderful thing just happened to me. Constance replies,
1: Why don't you come over and tell me about it?
0: I'll be right over. Goodbye. And so, he floats out the window. At the same time, we see Ken peering through a telescope, watching Constance as she bathes. Pervert. I mean, really. When (laughs) Laszlo floats by, a headwind knocks one of his shoes off, which clonks Ken in the noggin. So in case you thought this was like an allegorical floating... No, no, he's he's literally. Literally (laughs) flying above enough that this shoe hits him in the head.
1: (laughs) Now, finally, Constance and Laszlo have a moment alone. But only a moment. Their chat is interrupted by a phone call. Constance claims it's her father Offering to come over to help her with her taxes And we all know what that's called Uh huh Uh -huh. Now Laszlo leaves just as Mr. Don Comes sauntering down the road
0: Meanwhile Reed Fleming Who? Oh yeah it's true Uh, We finally get a Reed scene Hey! Well he was in jail for a while (laughs) He and Lena are out to dinner At the Copacabana, Some Copacabana type place
1: Yeah, Reed's ordering uh, his, uh, his drink. He goes, I'll have a Nanaimo Hummer, which I
0: don't think is on the menu. No, Lena says, and a bar of soap for his mouth. Yeah, suds. I think I'll go vomit. Grab me some chips, will ya? The waitress informs him his drink will be two bucks, and so he goes searching for the cash in Lena's pocketbook. He finds some money, but also a signed photo of the Slavgarian lover himself, Laszlo. Reed gets up to leave with a parting shot.
1: Yeah, and if I'm ever around a piano player, I'm going to have to do this myself. He, uh, <laughs> Reed yells over to the piano player,
0: your lips are out of sync. Right there you go. Definitely, Reed Fleming is someone you definitely want to uh, take as a role model. Yes. A guy, good guy to be. Over at Laszlo's, Ken bashes his way inside, like, really, like... With his head, bashes his <laughs> way through Laszlo's wall <laughs> yeah,
1: And you might figure that he's like mad or he's ticked no, not off not at all he's, he's just coming for a visit, it's a just, social call I think he
0: might just be drunk too, that might be it Could be <laughs> Ken goes, hey Laszlo Hey Ken So you're out of jail, eh? Yeah Why so bummed out then? It's Constance, when I was leaving her house a couple of hours ago And then he tells Ken about the puppet barber sauntering up to her house Gee, Laszlo, that's tough You got any dope? At the same time, back at Constance's house She and Mr. Don are finishing up Mr. Don heads back to his 24-hour barbershop And almost walks right past Laszlo Reed got there first and yanked the puppet into a side alley
1: 24-hour barbershop, how about that? I know, really Uh, How big a city is this? Um, (laughs)
0: Laszlo
1: eventually arrives at Constance's house
0: All right, where is he? Where is who? You're in love with that barber. What of it? They chat a bit more, and it's pretty clear their conscience is conflicted. Laszlo says, how can I sleep knowing the woman I love is in the arms of another man?
1: Then from a nearby tree, we hear Reed go,
0: I know exactly how you feel. Reed jumps down to the ground.
1: You know this man, Laszlo?
0: We have a mutual acquaintance, my wife. The two men begin to fight, and from across the street, we can see Ken. He's looking through a telescope at them. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yep.
1: Uh, Constance goes, uh, you morons, stop fighting! To which Reed replies, we're not
0: fighting, we're dancing! Ole! Bravo! <laughs> and while he does these moves, uh, Reed is beating the hell out of Laszlo this yeah. whole time. And I mean... <laughs> really, really, really hurting this man in yes. a big way, throwing him by, by his feet. I mean, it's really sub. You got to see. Uh, Ken arrives to get a better look at the uh, action, and Constance runs over to embrace him.
1: Ken, make them stop, please, stop it, Ken, please.
0: Laszlo sees Constance in Ken's arm, and Ken gives him the OK sign with his fingers. <laughs> what a jerk! Before breaking wind again.
1: <laughs> oh God, not again!
0: And Laszlo thinks to himself again. Uh-oh. Seems the jig might be up. Yeah. Uh, Lazlo makes, he put two and two together pretty quickly, much quicker than, uh, Ken did. <laughs> Ken did. Uh, next we see Ken dressed up like, I don't know, like Dirty Harry or something. He's got, like, sunglasses and a trench coat or something over here. Yeah, it's weird. He's burnishing a pistol. Uh, Reed casually hurls a shoe in his direction, knocking him out. That <laughs> <It> was great. <laughs> uh, then with both Laszlo and Ken's knocked out on the lawn, Reed leaves with his head held high, and that is until he notices Lena in Jay Leno's convertible card? Oh, some guy with it a looks big, like Jay Leno, right? big bouffant, yeah.
1: Yeah, so we could, uh, she could maybe be Lena Leno. Wow. I could, I could dig that. I bet. Yeah. Now uh, Constance returns to the front yard and slams the Pofsky uh, helmet onto Laszlo's head and then slams the window visor door thing shut. Laszlo gets up and realizes Ken had retrieved his little black book, and so he repossesses it. And we wrap up with him heading to a phone booth to call the next name on his list and uh,
0: paying a house call. That's right. He's back to his old... Slavarius, Hungus Slavarian, uh, yes. <laughs> tricks again, and that's the end of that comic. But we're going to continue on to talk a little bit more about David Boswell and Reed Fleming. In 1986, Reed Fleming, World's Toughest Milkman, number one, was reprinted by Eclipse Comics in the U.S., which had to be the version that I read uh, Probably, when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah, Eclipse would continue to publish a regular Reed Fleming series annually for the next five years, and in 1991, Eclipse published Fun with Reed Fleming. In an interview with the A.V. Club, Boswell states he wrote a read Fleming screenplay for Warner Brothers in 1987. The genesis of this endeavor was an internal survey Warner Brothers conducted with that indicated that Bobcat Goldthwait would be the next big thing. Mm. Well, that didn't pan out like they hoped.
1: Oddly enough, it panned out exactly how I hoped.
0: That's Uh, nice for
1: (laughs) him. Now, when when Bobcat flopped, Warnes was left without a leading man to deliver the milk. Uh, It was passed over to Dan Aykroyd. uh, And it just never went anywhere from that. Uh, We jump ahead to 1996, where John Lovitz read and memorized the entire Reed Fleming script in hopes of getting the part. His pitch was apparently well received, but still. Didn't go anywhere. Now, in 1996, uh, Deep Sea Comics would republish all the Eclipse stories. That's, uh, that's you know, that's Boswell's own imprint there. Mm-hmm. And uh, he followed that up with three issues of all new material. Going into the 21st century, in 2002, Dark Horse Comics published a Flaming Carrot and Reed Fleming World's Toughest Milkman one-shot. In 2011, IDW Publishing released a hardcover collection, the first of two. I, don't, I, I kept finding that there were the first of two, but I couldn't find it whether or not the second one ever made
0: it. I would say it didn't, because I own the first one, and I would snap mm-hmm. up the second one in a minute. Uh, but yeah, yeah I... I It's not out yet if ever Although I could swear that they were going to do something this year When I looked into this uh, But I I don't remember it enough to speak with any kind of authority About it Um, I thought I told you to shut up Which is a short film by Charlie Tyrell and Jonathan Demi About the Reed Fleming character Debuted at the South by Southwest Film Festival In 2015 It would win several awards Including Arizona International Film Festival Best Documentary Short Palm Beach International Film Festival Best Short Film And the film is available on Charlie Tyrell's official Vimeo page, and we will include a link in the show notes. I'm not going to say it, because it would sound like a bunch of gibberish. Uh, In in 2011, Boswell was inducted into the Canadian Cartoonist Hall of Fame, and that's the latest and greatest we have on him. Although, like I said, I could swear, maybe I I imagined it, I see so much comics news sometimes it can get blended together. Yes. Some what of it, it's old, some of it's recent. I, what, what did you think of this, Chris? Is your first time looking at it?
1: Yeah, it's my first time looking at it, and I really dug it. I, uh, it's not often. I mean, with the amount of comics that we read, it's not often that that one can actually make you laugh a bit. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And this one made me laugh a bit, and uh, really loved the way that they played with uh, with the language of comics here, with the, with him floating, with yeah. you know, it, the passage of time, and just the. Showing that literally he was floating, but figuratively he was floating as well. Okay. Um, just really, really good stuff.
0: Weird things like busting through the wall or Reed busting Fleming's, through the wall with his head. <laughs> Reed Fleming's truck. You know what I mean? Reed Fleming's truck flying, and even that whole like uh, uh, the masquerade party seems like some weird dream. You know, like it doesn't seem it does. like a real party, or that anyone would ever show up to a party. As Hitler, uh, that seems like really like, wow, okay uh, it, it it seems very strange, I, I read this, like I say, Look, think about it now It had to have been in 86, my father got it from who knows where, whatever the comic yeah. store shop was And uh, this and the other Reed Fleming comics, there were two others that existed at the time That uh, you can get from, I know from uh, Boswell's website also um, yeah. and I loved it, but mainly because it was about a, a tough guy throwing his truck around. And, uh, <laughs> the other, it's funny, this comic, uh, I picked this because this is the, the one with a story. Uh, yeah. It's got a full narrative, and the comic itself is like 40 pages. The other ones are just like two, three page, or one page stories of Reed Fleming smashes into a house, kills someone's cat, <laughs> you know, gives someone a heart attack and watches TV in her couch. That's the kind of thing it is. So, uh, Really, but even looking at flipping through it right now with you, like so much of this definitely worked itself into my brain as a kid. as like what humor (laughs) should be like, and maybe that's not the best way to be introduced to humor. (laughs) Do you think, Chris? But uh, I'm glad I'm glad you took a look, and I'm glad that we're able to do it for the show. Yeah, Uh,
1: the art was pretty nice too. Uh, It's it's just it's so detailed and so. Not simplistic, but it's 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 really just good art you need to see um,
0: it, it, it is it's, Well, you know there is an amateurishness to it You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it'd be hard to put your finger on it uh, You know, I'd say the, a lot of the basics As far as anatomy and Consistency, especially consistency uh, Between panels Which I think is a hard sure. thing for a lot of People to do, that's that's kept it very well You know what this reminds me of? Uh, it's hmm. um, Drew Friedman you know who that is? Does the pointillism he used to do covers for the Village Voice a lot? I uh, think I know who you're talking about, yeah. I, I, if you see it, he, he actually did a, he has a, a book out there that's called, like, The Early C- Cartoonist, and it's all of his pointillist uh, illustrations of early guys in the comics industry and in hmm. comic strips. And he's got this hyper-realistic, almost, like, gross—it gets so realistic it's gross, like, <laughs> seeing people's pores and blemishes and stuff like that. Uh, this sort of reminds me of that in the way that it is. It's like the, it, but it's not pointillism. It's lines, and yeah. it's like it gets super down detail. Like the 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 inking, you know, the the fineness of the pen must have been like a micron at some point. Sure. It's so, thin. <laughs> so it's uh it's definitely it's good art. You know, it's interesting. It's it's not typical. It's not superhero art, but then it's not a superhero book. So don't no. don't expect sure. that from it. <laughs> but uh, this is a different book. In other ways, it's not originally from the United States of America.
1: No, that brings us to this week's hook, where we're going to do a brief history of Canadian comics.
0: Uh, like Jim Carrey? No, no, no. But you got to be talking about Eugene Levy. Well, not that kind. Dan Aykroyd.
1: Oh, Canadian comic books.
0: Oh,
1: yes. Well,
0: no. You know. <laughs>
1: Now, the earliest recognized Canadian comics slash cartoons were of the political variety, drawn by British Brigadier General George Townshend, lampooning British Major James Wolfe. This is way back in 1759. Jump ahead 90 years later in 1849. Uh, now, comics then, political and otherwise, would find a home in the weekly Punch in Ca- Punch in Canada is what the um, yeah, magazine is called. that's the full
0: title, yeah, Punch in yes. Canada.
1: <laughs> now, Punch in Canada would run from January 1st, 1849 to April 27th, 1850, and was published by John Henry Walker in Montreal. Now this was a take on the weekly British humor magazine, just called Punch, but also known as the London Charivari, okay. which or Sharivari, uh, which would run from July seventeenth, eighteen forty-one, all the way until nineteen
0: ninety-two. Yeah, it was huge over there. Yes.
1: Now remember that Canada was still a part of England Mostly, and France, a little bit Until 1982 Though they had a particular autonomy Since becoming federated around 1867 uh, Now for the uh, for the Punch here There was a relatively brief revival of the mag From 1996 to 2002 And Punch is said to be Where the word cartoon had, Was first coined
0: It's a hugely influential magazine in the arts mm-hmm. and the, It wouldn't shock me if that was really The genesis, because I mean even like the Yellow cat Kid, which we consider the first American yeah. comic strip, it totally looks like something you would see in Punch. Absolutely. So uh, yeah. In eighteen seventy-three, writer, cartoonist, poet, and politician John Wilson Ben gow or Ben Gao founded the humor magazine Grip.
1: That's the one where you sell seeds and stuff to your family members. No,
0: no, that's you're thinking of grit. This is uh, oh, grit. Although we might have something to talk about with grit uh, soon enough, folks. Very soon. (laughs) Uh, The magazine would feature political cartoons written and drawn by Ben Goff himself. Other targets included John A. Macdonald, lived from 1815 to 1891. That was the first Prime Minister of Canada, and Louis Riel, 1844 to 1885. That was the leader of the Metis Metis people in Canada I'm sure I did not say that correctly But okay In 1888, (laughs) Ben Goff would become the first full-time Newspaper cartoonist in Canada When he joined the Montreal Star Grip would run from 1873 through 1892 Like Punch There was an attempt at a revival 108 years later This was short-lived and published by the Latigan Media Group in Toronto uh, here's a fellow, Palmer Cox, 1840-1924, to 1924, born in Grenby, Quebec, though living in the United States at the time, created the Brownies in 1879. The Brownies were a series of illustrated stories, not told in sequential art format, but <clears throat> in the same—it's sold as serials, right? That yeah. Yeah. In 1881, the characters would appear in Wide Awake magazine, February 1881. In 1883, the Brownies would appear in St. Nicholas magazine. This was a popular monthly children's magazine founded by Charles Scribner's Sons. Charles Scribner's Sons, today a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster in 1873. The Brownies would eventually be covered in Ladies Home Journal. Cox would publish the Brownies until 1918, Although in 1907, Brownie's illustration started to feature speech balloons becoming more comic-ish all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1904, Les
1: Aventures de Timothy by Albarek Bourgeois. as <laughs> a Bourgeois? Yeah, uh, that's, okay. that's, that's <laughs> what it is, the word is. Now, the, the the Adventures of Timothy was the first continuing comic strip to use word balloons in Canada, and possibly the first ever Quebecois comic strip, period. Now, Albert lived from November 29th 1876 until November 17th, 1962, and was one of the inaugural cartoonists inducted into the Canadian Cartoonists Hall of Fame in 2005. Uh, jumping ahead, to 1921, cartoonist and pal of Ernest Hemingway, Jimmy Freeze is a Freeze or Frise? Uh Frisee, I would think, but I couldn't. Okay, be- Jimmy Frisee, he managed to sell his comic strip Life's Little Comedies to the Toronto Star's Star Weekly, and the Star Weekly was the Star's Sunday edition magazine. Uh, the strip would be retitled as Bird's Eye Center and would go on to become the longest running English strip in Canadian history. In 1947, Frise would take the strip to the Montreal Standard, where it would be renamed again, this time to Juniper Junction. Uh, Now, a particularly notable Canadian comic strip artist is Hal Foster from Halifax, Nova Scotia, though he was living in the United States during his career. He worked on various licensed properties, including Edgar, Edgar Rice Burroughs Tarzan. Uh, he's more uh, known for uh, his own work here. That that came out February thirteenth, nineteen thirty-seven, and that was Prince Valiant.
0: I mean, that alone spawned so many comics artists. Sure. You know what I mean, that, that I always see they always name Valiant and uh, what's the other one, Tarzan? And the Tarzan. Old, uh, all those the the old lurid, very ornate Sunday comics. You know, sometimes gotta do one about Sunday comics. How different they were. They used to be like. Three feet long, you know what I mean? You yeah, can really, really get a good look at the artwork. But uh, on to the golden age of comics and the sort of saddle stapled comics that we're really more accustomed to discussing around here. Cover dated June 1938, action comics number one hit the stands, drawn by Toronto born Joe Schuster. That's right. As mm. a child, Joe worked as a paperboy for the Toronto Daily Star. Clark Kent also worked for a Daily Star during the Golden Age, which probably was taken right from there. Mm-hmm. Metropolis was also said to be based on his childhood memories of Toronto. Uh, for more on the early days of Superman, check out part one of our Death and Return series in the archive. But uh, that is something not everyone knows, that it's not just two boys from Ohio, it was a boy from yeah. Ohio and a boy from uh, Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and, uh, one of the publishing companies doing comics in uh, Canada was Anglo-American American Publishing. In December 1940, the War Exchange Conservation Act was passed. Uh, This restricted importation of non-essential American goods into Canada, and that included comic books.
1: Comics? Non-essential? Mm. Man, tensions must have been high.
0: I know, really. I mean, uh, but to fill the void, Anglo-American Publishing popped up and published, reprinted, and reworked reworked material in tabloid-sized format. Their first publication was Robin Hood and Company. Ted McCall's Robin Hood and Company had been a newspaper ship for the Toronto Telegram since 1936 Here's another publisher that was a result of the War Exchange Conservation Act Maple Leaf Publishing A short-lived Canadian comic book publisher based out of Vancouver, British Columbia The imprint was in business from March 1941 until 1946 And in that time, they would publish better comics That was the title of a comic uh, Considered the first true Canadian comic book Better Comics would run 34 issues from March 1941 to August-September 1946 cover dates. Other publications included Bing Bang Comics. That must have been made by uh, Joe Pesci, huh, no?
1: (laughs) Bada bing, bada bing. Exactly,
0: yeah. 31 (laughs) issues November to December 1941 uh, to May-June 1946 cover dates. Lucky Comics was 34 issues June 1941 to October-November 1946. Name It Comics was one issue, November-December 1941, and Rocket Comics was 32 issues, 1941 to 1946. The format was called Canadian Whites, because they had full-color covers, but black and white interiors. I thought we were talking about cocaine! We we wouldn't want to do that, no. That's for angel love only.
1: Yes. (laughs) Now, uh, the Comics Code Authority, it uh, loomed large in the United States, but also affected Canada. Uh, During the 1954 United States Senate subcommittee hearings on juvenile delinquency, the Honorable E. Davy Fulton of the House Commons Canada gave a statement. During the uh, testimony, during the meeting there they made sure to call it a statement rather than a testimony yeah. <laughs> we've got a quick quote from the uh, from the trial the uh, one of the senators said I'm going to depart from our usual procedure here in your case we have been swearing in witnesses but we are not going to swear in a member of Canadian Parliament you are one of us I
0: mean that's really that's something you know what I mean obviously yes. America has a special <laughs> relationship with Canada but it's like they're basically saying we don't even we're, we're not even going to make you swear an oath we Trust you implicitly. You know what I mean. Yes. Don't worry about it. You're good. So uh, I thought that was.
1: And we know you're gonna agree
0: with us. Yeah, well, that that too, exactly. You know.
1: <laughs> now, Fulton had passed a law banning crime comics in Canada. During his quote statement, claims are made of a boot- of bootlegging horror and crime comics into Canada, naming a drop point in Plattsburgh, New York, specifically. Uh, he would also amend Canadian indecency laws To include crime comics In it, it says Prince publishes, sells, or distributes Any magazine, periodical, or book Which exclusively or substantially Comprises matter Depicting pictorially the commission of crimes Real or fictitious Thereby tending, thereby tending or likely to induce Or influence youthful persons To violate the law Or to corrupt the morals of such persons <laughs> Wow. So, <laughs> they say all of that so we can say this. It is now a criminal violation to print, sell, or distribute a crime comic. Uh, three publishers and a wholesale distributor were convicted. Uh, they can't conf- can they can't enforce this on any U.S.-based publishers, running the whole thing relatively toothless. Well, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. Now, when tri- crime comics disappeared from sh- from store shelves, they were replaced by love, sex, and girly mags. Whoops. hmm now, for more of our coverage on all things Code and keyfaver, check out the first five episodes of Weird Comics History in the archives. Episode three in, sp- in particular is our blow-by-blow blow of the entire trial.
0: Yeah, and exactly uh, one thing, that, even though they couldn't enforce their restrictions on U.S. publishers, we were ref- enforcing our own restrictions that also... Killed crime comics and uh, wrote, you know, uh-huh. a lot of different kind of comics. But you, that's all in those episodes, folks, so go check them out if you get a chance. Uh, here's another publisher was Superior Publishers. A publishing house that defied the Canadian ban. In 1953, they would be found guilty of distributing obscenities. The same E. Davy Fulton we just mentioned had Superior on his hit list and... They would suffer a similar fate to EC Comics, getting reduced to nothingness. Basically. Uh, Southern Cross was a wordless novel created by artist Lawrence Hyde, published in 1951. This was a precursor to the Canadian graphic novel. Southern Cross consisted of 118 wood-engraved images, which sold the story of the effects of comic atomic testing on Pacific Islanders. The Nuclear Test and the Bikini Atoll, Operation Crossroads in 1946, were the prime motivator for this work, yeah. Uh, in Toronto, Viking Bookshop, this was Canada's first comic specialty shop oh, it opened its doors in 1966, certainly the first in North America, possibly the first in the world. The first comic book shop in the United States, which was San Francisco Comic Book Company, would open two years later in 1968. Uh, The shop was opened, uh, this was the Viking Bookshop, by Captain George Henderson. In 1967, the shop would relocate and change names to Memory Lane Nostalgia Shop. That address was 589 Markham Street in Toronto. A quick check of Google Street View shows this is no longer the case. In fact, there are some creepy things in the upstairs window, so Google that address at your own peril, folks. It's weird, yeah. yeah. Henderson would be a prolific advertiser, and a contributor to North American fanzines.
1: Now, similar to the counterculture movement south of their border, Canada had their own underground scene in the mid-'60s. A precursor to the Canadian underground comics was something called Scraptures. Scraptures was a 1967 special one-off issue of the avant-garde poetry and lit magazine, Gronk. Then come 1969, Canada had a healthy underground scene with books such as SFU Comics and Snore Comics. With an X. Um, now we can't talk about Canadian comics without talking about Dave Sim. David Victor Sim was born May 17th, 1956, in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Now this fellow definitely deserves his own bio episode, so we'll keep him brief here. Uh, Sim would drop out of high school after failing the 11th grade to get fast to work on his comics career. In 1972, he would produce a newsletter for a local comic shop called Now and Then Books. He would become friends with and then be taken under the wing of fellow Canadian comics artist Gene Day. Now, Howard Eugene Day was born in 1951 and passed away in uh, September 23, 1982, both in Ganonoke, Ontario. He's most well-known for his work on Marvel's Master of Kung Fu and providing inks on Star Wars. In 2001, Sim and his collaborator Gerhard founded the Howard E. Day Prize for outstanding achievement in self-publishing. The Day Prize would eventually become the Space Prize uh, after the event named after the event that it was awarded
0: at every year. Yeah, it's an acronym, and you don't know what you don't know what it stands for offhand, do Or.
1: Uh, self publishing something, something. There you something. go. Okay, self publishing art and comics expo, maybe.
0: Very good. I think your, your detective <laughs> work is unparalleled. Yes. Uh, his self published opus, opus, Cerebus, launched in December 1977 and would run 300 ish issues, concluding its 6,000 page story in March 2004. There were odd double issues every now and again, like one issue would be labeled two, two, 203 and 204. It was very weird and a little frustrating yeah. for numbering reasons. Uh, the series was published by his own publication house, Aardvark Vandheim. Sim was, and presumably still is, an advocate for creators' rights, who's one of the people involved in the writing of the Creator Bill of Rights. That uh, There's another in the works weird comics history episode that's been uh, simmering for a little Park while. Here, yeah. Man. He's been taken to task for having misogynist tendencies, but that's a story for its, his bio episode. Since February 2015, Sim has been dealing with a debilitating wrist condition, rendering it difficult, if not impossible, to draw, but there is... A comic on the stands now, Cerebus in Hell. Cerebus in Hell, yeah. That, uh, I don't think he's drawn by him, but uh it, it's still Cerebus is is back, folks, so he's still around. There yeah. it is. Uh go check it out. And if you want to read that whole Cerebus thing, boy, you are in for something weird, I'll tell you what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh Croc magazine, this is not a magazine about stylish shoes that are super comfortable and the people that wear them <laughs> tell you how comfortable they are constantly. They uh, do. It's about it's about a French language humor mag. Published in Montreal, Quebec from October 1979 until April 1995 It had 189 issues Croc would produce a sister publication called Titanic Which was dedicated to publishing comics Worth noting, in 1991 and 1992 Croc distributed a translated version of Mad Magazine That's cool.
1: Yeah, we got a. We're gonna talk about Captain Canuck, created by Canadian comic writer artist Richard Richard Comley. First appeared in Captain Canuck number one, July 1975. Featured a uh, you know Canadian superhero in the then future 1993, where Canada had become the world's leading power. This was not satirical, by the way. Uh, The story and character were basically Captain America and the Great White North. It was handled very straight. Uh, Now, the character looks an awful lot like Alpha Flight character Guardian, however predated that character by over three years. Speaking of which, Alpha Flight. This Canadian super team made their debut in X-Men number 120, this April 1979 cover date, and were created by John Byrne, a fellow who lived a lot of years in Canada himself.
0: Uh, for more on him... He may live there now, too. I'm not sure. I'm not sure where he is Maybe. now. But I know he uh, he emigrated there. He was born in England, right? Yep, and lived in Canada yeah. for while, then to the U.S. I, think he, I, I believe he went back to Canada, but don't quote me. I don't know.
1: <laughs> now, for more on him, you can check out our John Byrne Weird Comics History episode in the archives. Alpha Flight, we get their own long-running ongoing series that premiered in 1983 and uh, had several volumes. and. Uh, yeah. They might even be published now, for all I know.
0: Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think the uh, trades are still in publication. Mm. It's, a, it's a much beloved team by people that were there. Also, if we're talking about uh, just characters from, you gotta talk about Wolverine. I mean, they, that's that's the man Who? right there. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, that was uh, some uh, Canadian effects coming down that trickled into our uh, sphere of influence. The other thing that mm-hmm. we can go to the bookstore and see right now is drawn in quarterly books. It's a publishing company based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, publishing primarily comic books, graphic novels, and comic strip collections. Jordan was founded in 1990 by Montrealer Chris Oliveros. He was age 23 at that time. Oliveros was inspired by Art Spiegelman and Francois Mouly's Raw, a comics anthology magazine. Listen to our series of underground comics for more on that. Uh, He wanted to publish an art periodical of his own. So he borrowed two grand from his father to publish the first issue of the anthology magazine, Drawn and Quarterly, which debuted in April 1990. It was intended to be published four times a year. Soon, Oliveros realized there were arts comics which were too long to be contained in his magazine, and he began publishing standalone comic books and graphic novels, beginning with Julie Doucette's comic book Dirty Plot, which ran single issues 1991 to 1998. As graphic novels became more popular with the public, Oliveros found the need for a publicist. He asked Peggy Burns, who was a publicist at DC Comics, if she knew someone who could fill the job Burns offered herself and moved from New York City to Montreal. Uh, she was the company's third employee and soon signed a distribution deal for the publisher with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which is a high-end literary publisher which I think also informs the look of Jordan Quarterly* stuff. And when you mm-hmm. see it in the bookstore, it looks like you know, a, a, a you top know, shelf. Exactly, an yeah. old reader of some kind. You know what I mean? Like, it would be like a leather bound, stamped, all kinds of uh, bells and whistles on it. Uh, in fact, I've looked at it many times and thought to myself, how do they possibly afford that? But anyway, that's right. uh, <laughs> another thing. Jordan Quarterly reduced the number of serialized titles it published, focusing on book form comics such as collections and graphic novels. Business expanded over the next decade to the extent that the publisher employed, get this, nine people. Ooh. Tripled its employees In 2003 A Jordan Quarterly manifesto was released Describing to booksellers How to stock and sell graphic novels In 2008 Jordan Quarterly Opened an English language bookshop On Bernard Street in End, Mil- in Montreal selling mostly comics Shop also hooks books Launches and signings and has a stage For live music and I've been to this Location and I gotta say hmm. Comics aside Chris it's one of the best bookstores I've ever been to of any kind. Wow! Because it doesn't just have comics; it has all types of books. You're not going to find, you know, Catcher in the Rye and classics in there, but you <laughs> you will find a lot of interesting memoirs. I got a book on the uh, Satanic Panic of 1980s. Oh wow! Uh, as well as you know all uh, you know all the reprints that they make. I also got some Gasoline Alley stuff. So, if you're in Montreal, I would say this is a must see. You got to go check it out. Nice. Uh, it is currently the most successful and prominent comics publisher. In Canada, publishing well-known comics artists such as Linda Barry, who I believe is the editor-in-chief right now, Kate Beaton, Mark Bell, Chester Brown, Daniel Klaus, Michael DeForge, Guy Delisle, Julie Doucette, Mae Fleener, Joe Matt, Shigeru Mizuki, Rutu Modan, Joe Sacco, Seth, Yoshihiro Tatsumi, Adrian Tomine, or Tomine, and Chris Ware. How about that? Mm -hmm.
1: Now we're going to talk about Todd McFarlane in brief. He was born March 16th, 1961, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He began drawing at an early age and became a fan of comics particularly those drawn by John Byrne and George Perez. He attended the Sir Winston Churchill High School in Alberta and created his character Spawn when he was 16. In 1981, McFarlane began, began attending Eastern Washington University on a baseball scholarship while studying graphics and art. His practical goal was to join his father in the printing business in Calgary, though his dream was to either be a comic book creator or a professional baseball player. A serious ankle injury in his junior year during a game with arch-rivals, Washington State University, imperiled those dreams of playing professional ball.
0: Mm-hmm, but while still in college, McFarland began sending 30 to 40 packages of submissions each month to comics editors, totaling over 700 submissions after a year and a half. But half of them got rejection letters, some with advice, other half received no response at all. DC Comics artist Sal Amendola gave McFarlane a dummy script in order to gauge McFarlane's page-to-page storytelling ability. Amendola's advice was that McFarlane's submissions needed to focus on page-to-page stories rather than pin ups led McFarlane to create a five-page Coyote sample. Coyote was a self-owned comic by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers, published by Marvel's Epic imprint at this time, then continued at Eclipse Comics.
1: Todd sent his pages to Uncanny X-Men editor Ann Nacenti at Marvel Comics Who would then pass them along to Archie Goodwin And Joe Duffy They were the editors of the epic imprint They in turn passed it on to Coyote creator Steve Englehart Who called McFarlane to offer him His first comic job This was a backup story in Coyote number 11 Cover dated March 1985 McFarlane soon began drawing For both DC and Marvel With his first major body of work Being a two year run on DC's Infinity Inc This was from uh, 1985 To
0: 1987 McFarlane illustrated the latter three Issues of Detective Comics four issue Batman year two storyline Written by Mike Barr Uh, Also the first two parts of the 1989 Invasion event Todd moved on to Marvel's Incredible Hulk which he drew from 1987 To 1988 working with writer Peter David McFarlane joined McFarlane joined writer David Michelini on Marvel's The Amazing Spider-Man, beginning with issue 298. That was March 1988 cover date. His Spidey poses were pretty dynamic, if not anatomically impossible. Uh, McFarlane was also the first artist to draw the first full appearance of Eddie Brock, the original incarnation of the villain Venom. Working on Amazing Spider-Man Todd McF- made Todd McFarlane a superstar. His cover art for Amazing Spider-Man number 313, that was March 1989 cover, for which he originally paid 700 in 1989, for example, would sell later for $71,200. In 2010 That's a lot of jack Quite a big appreciation in value right there
1: (laughs) Now Todd would become increasingly dissatisfied With the lack of control over his own work And he wanted some more say in the direction of storylines He also began to miss some deadlines Requiring fill-in artists to pitch in in 1990, after a 28-issue run on Amazing Spider-Man, McFarlane told editor Jim Salakrup that he wanted to write his own stories, and he would be leaving the book after issue 328, is the January of 1990 issue. And That was part of the years the, of Marvel's uh, years, the, the year at Marvel's company-wide Acts of Vengeance uh, crossover storyline. In July 2012, the original artwork to that issue's cover, which features Spider-Man dispatching the Hulk, sold for a record-breaking $657,250. Whoa. A lot of money. Wow. Now, wanting to appease McFarlane, Marvel offered him a new, adjective-less Spider-Man title for him to both write and draw. And so Spider-Man number one, August 1990, sold 2.5 million copies. Whoa.
0: A lot of books. It almost seems like a dream that that could even happen now. You know what right? I mean? Like what? If, yeah, that's if, not gonna happen. If you if you saw that if you saw that on uh, you know the uh whatever the, the the numbers now you'd think something went wrong.
1: Yeah, you know, it'd be, be a glitch. Be like, you'd, have to, you'd have to ship like forty-five in every loot crate. We got to you know, fix
0: this, really.
1: Yeah, <laughs> his final issue of that title was number sixteen. It was the November issue, and it began a crossover with X Force. uh he had disagreements with with Todd and X Men editor uh, Danny Fingeroth. Uh He left Marvel along with six other superstar artists to found Image Comics, and uh, the rest, they say, is history. Of course there is more to his story. And for a more fleshed out Todd bio, check out episode sixty eight of Weird Comics of uh, Cosmic Treadmill actually in the archives. And uh the uh, Miracle Man special that we promise will happen eventually.
0: Eventually. There's a lot there's a lot there, folks. It's been written down, believe me, uh But it's being picked away at. We got so many in the the works, we need a lot of that intern. We're not kidding about it. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, uh, last guy we're going to talk about. This guy is more recent, but definitely pretty tremendous. Brian Lee O'Malley was born February 21st, 1979, in London, Ontario, and studied film at the University of Western Ontario. But he dropped out before completing his degree. His first published work was Hopeless Savages Ground Zero from Oni Press. That was June, October 2002. His first original work was the graphic novel Lost at Sea, also through Oni Press, but he's best known for creating the Scott Pilgrim series from 2004 to 2010, which would go on to have a feature film release on August thirteenth, 2010, uh, directed by Edgar Wright, starring Michael Cera and Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and the... Uh, Scott Pilgrim series, which is essentially American manga, I guess, right? Okay. That's what we call it. North American manga, yeah. Yeah, it does very, very well. Uh, I've only ever looked at it. I've seen the movie, uh, but yeah. uh, it's it's <laughs> it's definitely cool. I like it. it. Definitely seems like what we'd say is cool. The kids like to say that. <laughs> um, but we're gonna wrap this up with with a letter, folks. We don't uh, always do this, but we should do it more often. And I think we're we gonna should. gonna uh, give uh, one of our great listeners a little shine here
1: yes this is from uh, jeremiah jones goldstein it's a dated january 7th so it's been sitting and again we apologize (laughs) Uh, he starts happy new year i hope you both enjoyed your holidays this weekend, I drove down to my mother's house and listened to several episodes of the podcast, including the Star Brand episode. That's right. I thought, yeah, that was a that was a good one there. I, I thought you guys did a really great job with the Jim Shooter biography, and I really got a lot out of it. I did not know that he started writing at such a young age to support his family. I also thought it was interesting how he turned around the freewheeling Marvel operations into a much more structured environment, and how much he did for the creators and their benefits. I did not know. I, I did not know much. About his history at Valiant, and enjoyed hearing more on that. Uh, I always thought of Jim Shooter as one of those guys in comics that should get mentioned in the same conversation as Stan Lee, Kirby, Roy Thomas, etc. Not because of what he created, but because of what he did for the industry. I mean, his his name was on seemingly every Marvel comic that I read up I read growing up, so he had
0: to be pretty important, right? Uh, you would think so, and I I think <laughs> we agree with you that he definitely should be Absolutely. mentioned along with some of the. Uh Greats, but uh, he continues. Jeremiah continues. In my mind, I always thought of him as the kind of as a this kind of hard-ass kind of guy, a real my way or the highway type. That's just because of what I've read about him from different creators who did not work well with him. I suppose there is probably some truth to that. But after listening to your podcast, in reality. He is a much more complex individual, which it really is the best thing we Absolutely. could ever. heard, because that's what we yeah. wanted to get across. Uh, I got the chance to meet Jim Shooter at the Rhode Island Comic-Con this past November. He was super nice, and because he did not have uh, a line when I got to him, we actually got to spend some time talking. He's still a pretty imposing fellow, tall, <laughs> clean-cut, but very friendly. Still has that crew cut, by the way, yeah? Yep. <laughs> uh, I had asked him to sign my copy of Star Brand Number 1, so he started telling me about the history of the new universe without any prodding. He mentioned many of the same things you did about the original concept and then the budget getting stripped because of the owners wanting to sell, how they couldn't put the muscle behind it that they originally intended. One of the most interesting things he told me was that John Romita Jr. came to him and requested a new star brand. He told John he couldn't pay him his normal rate and that he would be losing money, but that John was insistent and wanted to be part of it anyway. Finally, thank you for the heads-up on his blog. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Also, for the information about back issue number 34, which I don't remember if it was that yeah, issue, but okay. one of those, yeah. Uh, I'll look that up. Uh, as always, it was another great episode that I enjoyed very much. Keep up the great work. In regards, Jeremiah Jones Goldstein. Uh, P.S. I really can't wait to do a History of Wizard magazine. I love how when you mention it, you describe it. Uh, as that it decided what was cool that week, as much as I loved reading the magazine, I always did feel a little like it was trying to push its own agenda with what was going to be hot and what was not and uh that's definitely true. Thank you very, very mm-hmm. much thank you, Jeremiah. thank you a lot to, lot to talk about your for one thing I would say uh back issue magazine, if you like comics history, just start getting them just start decorating. yeah, just start grabbing them you know often you go to a convention uh will be at the tomorrow's publishing table. You get a bunch of them for cheap. Uh they're really sure. so good. Uh that and Alter Ego, we use those all the time in a lot of their mm-hmm. publications, so uh I can't that's it gets the highest recommendation. But uh I think that's great, Chris, that he got that out of Jim Shooter. That's exactly uh, that's what we were hoping for. You know, that, that was exactly what we were hoping for. Because you you only get his uh you know, people hear about him through from creatives. And I think that like we said, that was his failing was dealing with creatives with people, yeah. Is was well, he was not a real people person, but uh, he brought you know sanity to Marvel. You know what I mean, and, mm-hmm. and made them into the powerhouse that you know people people talk about how Marvel was you know outselling DC and they were throughout the seventies, but they were really kind of like limping along too, you know. And it was sure. because there was a weak market, and, yeah, a you know, very weak market, and they they weren't making their deadlines and uh, their stories were definitely running kind of. Off the rails, and you know things are going crazy. So nobody
1: uh, cared. Yeah,
0: you, you needed somebody to do the. Uh, this is this is the reality, and this is not just comics. You need someone to do the boring work, right? Like mm-hmm. someone's got to mind the books. someone Someone's, sure. someone's got to make sure the, the the lights go on in the morning. Whatever it is you got to do, they got to sweep the floor. There's always something boring to do, and someone's got to do it. And that's what Jim Shooter did at Marvel: the the dull work, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Of keeping a schedule and yeah, you know, the unglamorous, work. busting, yeah, busting people's chops. That's, I guess, that's a better way to put it. The unglamorous work. It's like, if you don't do that though, the whole thing falls apart. So, everything falls apart. Uh, yeah. Really glad to hear that. Really cool that you got to meet him too. Uh, that's awesome. I've yeah. heard he's real approachable, a real, real nice dude. And real tall. Uh, and I, I'm sorry, he's very <laughs> tall, that's that's true. As for Wizard Magazine, I, we've talked about it, you know, that, mm-hmm. uh, Chris, you read that while it came out, I was I was not reading that so much, uh, it's funny, because this week you've been putting up, you've been tweeting out some pictures from Amazing, Amazing Heroes, Heroes Magazine, yeah. which is one that I remember more from when my father got it in the 80s, but... Even then, I was I was like, I'm not reading I'm not reading a magazine about comics when I can read yeah, this, comics. Yeah, there's like, too many words in yeah, there. Yeah, this, this is a waste of my time. So, uh, <laughs> I would definitely like to look into it. We did talk about zines. Uh, I think giving yeah. the magazines and definitely Wizard magazine, which is so tied up in that '90s speculative oh, bubble. Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's
1: definitely coming. It's uh, yeah. I don't really have we don't really have much on paper about it yet, but uh. I do have a long box that is full of wizard magazines and, uh, and I, I, that's, that's definitely something I want to, I want us to take our time with because, uh, we've had several ideas of things like little gimmicks. We wanted to run with that. Uh, like even like going over, overblown, like <laughs> promoting, you know, hot artists and hot hot oh. comics, hot titles. Uh, also the, uh, you know, a big part of that was that price guide, which right. it might not have been. It might not even been worth the paper it was printed on, because, well, as Jeremiah said here, there there was an agenda, and uh, yeah. you know, they would they would publish rumors. And those rumors would affect
0: the would prices. inform the prices. I know they, they would. Were, yeah, they're running their own racket, basically. Uh, yeah. Cause also, just that... artificially setting, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Prices for not rare books. That's sure.
1: That would... Yeah, that was that one. Uh, that one we talked about during the death and return of Superman, where uh, there was an issue at the end of Panic in the Sky, where Wizard said that Doomsday made his first appearance. Right. He didn't, but it still it still inflated the value of that book in their own. In their own magazine.
0: I think to this day, frankly, you know, there's a trade for that. I think (laughs) think so. It's not a bad story, but I've always wondered, like, why is this getting a trade? But I guess it's that one issue, like, blew up.
1: Yeah, it's very, very, very strange and Another gimmick we were thinking about doing Is actually tracking the value of a single comic Through the run of Wizard Just to see how they go Or maybe one from one from each of the big uh, publishers Just right. to see what the uh, Just what the, the, the flavor was uh, Of the time So
0: that it, be, it, that there's be, a lot of ideas That would be an interesting exercise uh, We could definitely, yeah, we could like Almost follow a comics history You know, a brief history yeah. of like What was going on in comics by how they reacted to a Spawn or something Or sure. you know, a uh, X-Men comic So uh, yeah I mean there's, We're definitely going to talk about it in some form Or oh, fashion yeah. It's just how it comes out uh, Like I say we have again uh, In the hopper that uh, <laughs> What about direct marketing speculating uh, mm-hmm. And Wizard will at, at least get a chunk of that if not an episode Oh I sure, would think. So, sure. Uh, Thank you very much Jeremiah we will take Yes that. thank you all into consideration, and uh, if any of you would like to contact us and talk to us about whatever you'd like about Reed Fleming or about uh, comic speculation, or just if you're Canadian and you want to really rip into us for ruining all those names and giving out all the wrong information. <laughs> Our
1: mispronunciations. All the mispronunciations.
0: You go right ahead, write to us at History at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic History. We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill, and I'm on Twitter at ReggieReggie.
1: Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics.
0: See our weekly writings and comics reviews at weirdsciencedccomics.com, and you see Chris's personal blog where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week now for three-plus years. <laughs> two-plus years, right? Two-plus years, yep. Uh, Chris is on infiniteearths.com. And uh, also, uh, oh. You're doing the uh, action comics thing right now.
1: I'm doing yeah, I'm doing my Action Comics 100.
0: You where I'm trying to it. it now. I mean, you are just <laughs> yes. It's all Action <laughs> Comics all the time lately over there, and I'm loving it. Though some, even some that I recognize the uh, covers and the interiors too. So uh, mm-hmm. you're grabbing them from every every era too. Like you always do. Yep. Seventy. Did one from dude.
1: the '60s yesterday.
0: That's gorgeous stuff.
1: 1964. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. If you want to see all that wacky stuff and uh, great thoughtful reviews, pick a lot of pictures from a comic plus. <laughs> comic book advertisements, you gotta head over to com. Thank
1: you, you can also head over to WeirdComicsHistory.blogspot.com where we're actually, we've got some stuff popping now. Yeah, I actually got involved
0: for a minute and uh <laughs> I put up the uh, Puzz Fundles from the, mm-hmm. the backup from The One which was an episode we did, I remember like four ago or something.
1: Uh, episode 74?
0: That sounds about right, yeah, maybe yeah. it was three ago and yeah. uh I forget what the other thing I put up was, quite frankly. <laughs> something else. Uh, and, and I'm going to make it part of the thing every Sunday. Uh, we'll mirror, you know, part of it going live on Podbean. Is yeah. It will also go live on Weird Comics History. It'll be the Podbean player, so it, whatever place you like to uh, do it, you know, play it is fine, or download it to your phone. Whatever is convenient for you is what works best for us, but uh... yeah,
1: and we'll pop, uh, we'll pop the uh, like an actual chronological uh, episode listing over there uh, in the next couple of days, because. Yeah. Uh... Because we did our uploading kind of backwards, where we were doing new stuff mixed with classic stuff, mixed yeah, with different things. So we're we're gonna we're gonna try to organize it a little bit better and uh, see how that works out. And I don't know, maybe even maybe even put together some some box sets for our giant episodes to get everything in order.
0: With some new uh, some new sleeve art, right? Maybe some liner sure. notes. you know we you know people like to see. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that'll be, I think eventually we hope to make that into where you go, if you yeah. want to know what's up, where you find our older episodes and stuff, because we know it's a little crazy on our Podbean right now, but there's really nothing yeah. you can really do about it up front. You kind of have to uh, go and maybe fiddle around with some Play, dates, yeah. so, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll get it going, but uh, I think that's all we got from this week, Chris. Got anything else for him? That'll do it. Well, until next week, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill slavically. See ya, eh? Oh, look out, California